This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off, not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. 
And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 597 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Dorit Mouse. Now, Dorith has an incredible story of entering the world of fashion as a model, as a young girl, and then the incredible journey that's taken her through, the highs of traveling internationally, the lows of some of the mental health struggles, and then ultimately going from in front of the camera to behind the camera. So before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 600 guests. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Dorit Mouse. Enjoy. Well, Doris, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So we have an unusual answer to my opening question. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in India. So let's start with that. How did you find yourself a Dutch woman in India? This is a good question. Um, it's a very easily um, a repliable one. My partner is from here. Oh, beautiful. So I'm just um, scattered over the earth. Perfect. I love it. All right. Well, then I love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. I was born and raised in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Um, I'm an only child of two. I was talking about this today. Amazing parents who... Um, Raised me in a very, very liberal, open, free, understanding and grown up type of way. So I was allowed because I was an only child. I would always talk to them as if I was a grown up. I was kind of just part of the gang, talking to their friends and their acquaintances and stuff like that. Um, I my mom is a writer. She wasn't when I was little. She was a massage therapist. Um, my dad is a Dutch professor, which he also wasn't when I was little, <laughs> he was an actor. Um, and they're amazing people. And when I was 13, I got scouted to be a model. It set my career off in London and, um, my parents obviously wanted me to finish high school. So that's what I did. And at 18, Having my fresh paper of graduation under my arm, I went to Tokyo to properly full-time model. And that's what I did until very, very recently. So about 20 years. Brilliant. Well, I want to go all the way back to the beginning for a second. So as you went through, mental health became an issue. I know, um, you know, body dysmorphia, is, I think it's common in a lot of people. Modeling world is definitely kind of under the microscope with that. 
When you look back at your childhood, were there any elements of trauma and or any kind of contributing elements that factored into the body dysmorphia later? Um, I mean, I kind of already want to say I actually didn't didn't necessarily have a huge problem with body dysmorphia until in retrospect. Um, I'll, I'll touch on that when we get there. But um, I, I mean, I think everybody goes through trauma. I think we're just basically accumulations of yeses and nos and, 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 you know, have people that are supposed to be our influence. And some of those are not so good. Um, I think you find that out later most of the time, but I mean, during my childhood, I did run into some issues that kind of wove throughout. Um, I was bullied really badly. So I switched schools three times. I um, was raised in a neighborhood where I was very different from everybody else, which is funny because everybody was very, very different from one another, but they all had something in common, which is that they were raised but not born in Holland. And so, yeah, there was a posse that I wasn't allowed to join. And in school, I had quite a difficult time. Um, focusing was really difficult for me. I was, like I said, always having very grown-up conversations with my parents and with the people around me. So then I was always that kid that wasn't maybe kid enough, if that makes any sense. Um, you go through, th through those things, and then at some point you, you, you realize that what people see you as is also an external thing. I was such an internal kid. Let's put it that way. I was, I was thinking a lot, overthinking a lot and then expressing that. Right. But like when you realize that you're actually liked for what you look like, then obviously that brings a whole set of challenges. So yeah, I don't know. I, I saw pictures of myself very recently uh, of me at like eight or 10 and I was like, shit, I need to post this. And I posted it and said, no to younger self. Please know that you're beautiful. Because I thought I was so skinny and I thought I was had such weird knees. And like, how random is that? To think that you have weird knees at eight years old, you know what I mean? It's just quite stupid. Um, so yeah, I mean, I do think that those things led to a certain way of looking at myself that was then later reflected in the opposite way where people were actually paying me for my looks, right? Which is like the opposite. So yeah, there's definitely things there from, from very young on, I think. Now with the bullying and moving schools three times, obviously there's probably some sort of consistency. What were some of the things that the cruel children were saying in the bullying way about you? So it's, it's actually quite interesting. I, I very recently uh, spoke to a therapist about all this and, and um, it, it's actually a little bit exceptional what happened because I was never bullied in a conventional way, <laughs> so to say. Um, so it wasn't like the kids would steal my backpack and then throw my books into the water or I was never really, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't punched or, you know, the things you see in the movies where you're like pushed around or people like point at you and tell you that you're ugly or something. I was bullied in a very interesting way where people would actually first befriend me and then ignore me. So it was almost I, as if I was almost popular. So I was almost good enough to be that kid that everybody liked, everybody liked. 
but I wasn't. So the the kind of like the the creme de la creme, the top of like the the school. In every class, you have the you know the couple of kids that are popular, and they would befriend me, and then invite me to a birthday, for example, and then all treat and then all treat me really badly or ignore me. And so I started thinking, okay, well then maybe people just want to be friends with me outside of school so that inside of school they don't have to admit that they're friends with me. So I started kind of trying to be their friend outside of school. And it was it's 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 quite weird when you when <laughs> I look back and I go I mean, I used to say that I wasn't bullied. And then I'm like, but wait, if you're actually going to a birthday party and the parents of that kid take you to the movies and it's 15 kids and you get out of the movies and all of a sudden everybody's gone and they just left you. That's terrible. That's just terrible. If, if, if a kid asks you to be the first person to take a drag of this cigarette that they had made, and they say, oh, no, we're all doing it. And then give me a drag and then I'll laugh. That's terrible. Like that, That's like top shelf bullying. But it's not very tangible or like visible. So like you tell your teacher, your parent, it's not something that you can really tell from a distance. Like a teacher can see if a kid is being shoved or your books are missing. Right. I mean, you, you come back, you're like, OK, they threw my books into the water. They're wet. There's proof. Right. You can't just be like, hey, so all these kids started started ignoring me. Did you see that? You know what I mean? No, exactly. You're very invisible. I just saw a post recently. It was a kind of like a, a comedy mock of, but it was it was actually I think it was English kids that did the video. But it was like, you know, bullies in America movies. And through English eyes, I'm like, is that even a thing? Do, do, are there jocks and they pick up the geeks and put them in the lockers? Because like you said, all the bullying I saw was a lot more kind of cruel intentions-esque, a lot more kind of deviant psychology rather than, you know, like you said, knocking off their books or, you know, pushing them into yeah. a locker. Or, yeah. or So, yeah. So, I think what you experience is probably a what most people experience with the bullying you know that that being kind of lured in and then and then shut back out again yeah yeah i think so now with with the environment that you grew up so at eight years old you know you, you as you said when you look back you had this kind of low self-esteem and, and i've seen it you know myself i've seen it in my son um but today in my son's generation you've got instagram you've got all this stuff just cram down these children's and he didn't have Instagram, but you know, you're surrounded by that. Um, what were some of the kind of external elements that you think made you question the way you looked when you were eight? Um, that's actually a really good question. And I wouldn't know one, two, three, how to actually answer that. But I think a lot of the imagery that was there, let me put it this way, in social media that we have now, there's so much out there. Everybody's a model. Everybody's a photographer. Everybody's a filmmaker. You can have, you know, 25 megapixels in the palm of your hand and da-da-da-da-da, right? We have filters and all that type of stuff. But before that, obviously, it was like magazines and the silver screen and those things. And it was this much smaller world. To get there was quite hard, you know? So if you were there, wow. Right. So 
I think I was always a bit of a dreamer and I just looked up way too much, like way too far. So instead of looking at another 10-year-old kid or like someone who lives in my neighborhood or someone in school, I'd look at someone who was in the movies or on TV or in a magazine, right? And all these things become so relative in retrospect. I've said the word retrospect three times already in this conversation, but it's such an important one because as you're going through something, you don't realize how you're going to feel about that later. And the brain, the human brain develops until you're 25. So I think when you're a kid, you know, you're, you're, you're just too young to understand the importance of certain things. So like the external thing becomes really big, right? Because if you see this really good looking person on TV and this is represented as what you should be, you don't realize that there's 10,000 other things you could be because it's very presented. So I think social media or no social media, I think it's always been that way where it's like, you know, you'll get there. Where's there though? You'll make it. What's it? Like, is there just one it? No, I don't think so. But back then, you know, you think there's one it. You think there's one there. We all need to get there. So I don't know. I think I just looked up a lot. And to be really honest, I'm really happy that I did. And I'm also really happy I was bullied because <laughs> um, it made me a very assertive young woman at some point. And I needed that, especially in my career. Um but yeah, I don't know. I, I think the external thing just becomes that gigantic gap between you and something you admire. Well, I see that in in social media at the moment. I think it, it can do one of three things. It can inspire someone. Oh, you know, I'm seeing this person. I'm going to go on my own journey. There's a full understanding that I'm going to make me better. You know, I'm competing with myself. That's a very healthy um, journey. I think part two is, like you said, you know, you see these fashion models, you see, um, you know, these high level athletes, whatever it is, and they're doing incredible things, skydivers. And, and you're like, oh, you know, that's, I'm so far from that. You know, I have this feeling of low self-esteem rather than, again, let me f start on my own journey. And then I think the third one, which is also bad is it kind of, I think it fosters defeatism as well. Well, I'm never going to be that good. So what's the point of me even starting? So, you know, I think the middle, the first one is, 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 a, is an amazing thing. You can look at some of these people just like you did and be inspired. But then the danger is, you know, like you said, that gap becomes huge and or it's so overwhelming, it actually is crippling. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I mean, social media has has played a large role in in how I look at the world now as is but I'm very happy that I was that I had a long time of life before that existed because I look at like 15 year olds now and I go well shit I was at least able to be friends with those kids outside of school but now they're cyberbullying and you know sending DMs to people that you know and I'm like wait but that's outside of school outside of your neighborhood outside of your family right like there's this entire world that still feeds into who you want to be what you want to be who you want to know and I have I mean I'm a grown up but I have had moments where I actually had to force myself to like unfollow certain people because I actually realized they weren't good for my mental health because they, they created that gap and the gap is often fake. Oh, absolutely. 
I think your world more so than any. I mean, yeah, you look at now, I think it's been kind of revealed the, the kind of movie magic behind modeling. You know, yes, you have a, a beautiful symmetric person, but then, you know, there's the lighting and then there's the makeup and then there's the, the photo editing and you see the person in real life and everyone's like, Oh, so yeah, because that's, that's art. That's, that's a, a singular yeah. photo of this individual. That's not how they walk around 24 seven. Yeah, 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 for sure. 100%. It's actually funny you say the word um, symmetry. I mean, I'm a filmmaker now and I, um, um, I say cinematry often as a self-made word. Uh, I love symmetry because I love balance. Um, but I'd much rather be symmetrical on the inside than I am on the outside. <laughs> like I'd rather my soul be symmetrical than my face, to be honest. I love that. I absolutely love that because I'm very asymmetrical aesthetically. So I'll just say I'm symmetrical on the inside instead. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, going back to your early life, because I want to kind of walk through your, your journey into modeling. But before we do, when you were a young girl, were you playing any sports at all? I did everything that you can think of for about 2.5 seconds. Uh, I wanted to be good at everything. And so I'd give it a go. And if I found out that it wasn't my thing, I'd move on. And so obviously you can't be good at everything. So I did everything and a couple things stuck. So I did track and field for a little bit. I did swimming for a little bit. Um, I did self-defense for a while. Um, a little bit later, I boxed a lot. Um, not kickboxing, just normal boxing. Um, I did a lot of ball sports for just a little bit, you know, <laughs> handball, soccer. Um, yeah, it was always a little bit. And then I just found out that that wasn't me. I'm a very active person, but I'm not necessarily sporty. So I'm not competitive enough to want to win in something. So I'm much more of like a just for fun. Like I played squash, for example, for quite a long time, but it was just because I really liked it. And then I'd just, you know, create our own rules with my friends. You know, we'd be like, oh, yeah, it's not supposed to be on that line, but it's fine because we're just having fun. And I love it that way. So I'm very active. And, you know, I love being outside and like climbing trees. And I still do that. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll play beach volleyball and all that type of stuff, but not really for the sport of it mm -hmm. or the competition. So you enjoy play rather than sport. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, yeah. were you boxing prior to being discovered as a model or was that during your early modeling career? Not early, actually, a little bit later. Um, I discovered it when I was, when I had a huge breakdown. <laughs> um, I was living in New York and uh, a friend of mine, Brian, um, had like a personal trainer boxing dude. <laughs> That's an official word, by the way. Look it up. Um, <laughs> and I was hanging out with Brian one day and he was like, oh, shit, I forgot I have training. And uh, I was like, oh, I want to meet your trainer. And he came and his name was Jackson. And what a guy. Like, what a guy. I was just kind of instantly in love with his with his charisma. And he was telling all these stories and being so animated. And he was like, you should come. You should come to the club one day. You should come to the gym. And I was like, sure. And I basically went the next day or maybe two days later. And it was this dingy, proper, of old sweat smelling, only dude 
boxing gyms. And I came in as this skinny white girl with blonde hair. <laughs> There's like these three hurly burly black dudes like practicing together. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> I want to be here. And um, I asked him if he wanted to train me. And it became one of those really human deals where he said, I'll train you this and this time, you know, four times a week. And you pay me this much and you take it for dinner once a week. And we became friends, you know, this way. And like all the other trainers in the gym, like I'd come in and they'd all turn around and be like, yeah, you know, like <laughs> just proper dudes. And I just felt so at home because it was so real. It was so, you know, nothing was made to be pretty, just absolutely nothing. And it really helped me because I was really down at that time in my career and as a human. So I was quite falling apart and living in New York, which is also not easy. And it really, really helped me. However, I'm a migraine patient and I started to get migraines more and more often during boxing. And so I had to just quit because it was just too much for me. I, I tend to, with whatever sport to come, to come back to sport and play, I'll start with play. And then I get all this adrenaline and all this like, Oh, and I just keep on going. And I forget that I'm also a very sensitive <laughs> little girl. And uh, yeah, so I go way too far. And it, it, it brings me to the brink of like, you know, I get aura and then I'm just out for 24 hours. So it wasn't worth it anymore, but it really helped me. I can relate. It was my Mr. Miyagi. I'm, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Say that again. Is your Mr. Miyagi? He was my Mr. Mi- yeah, he was my Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> so I, I had migraines for the longest time. Actually, I think alcohol was one of the triggers and I'm not talking about drinking crazy amount, but just, you know, one or two. But the other thing definitely is being punched in the head. I think the, the rocking of the brain and what it does to your neck. I think that kind of like starts that muscular contraction, which I felt would, would set off my migraines as well. Yeah. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. Now, did you did you spar? Uh, yeah, but obviously because I was a model, I couldn't really get any injuries. I was so it was ask all that. very it so- was all very soft and cute. But you know, it, it was when it was me in the bag or me in the speed bag or me, you know, me and the trainer it was all really real. But with sparring, it was all like, oh, leave her face alone. Be careful. Because I heard someone. I don't know if it was my guest or I was listening to someone else on a show, but someone who was either either an actor or a model and they boxed and they had to go on a shoot with a big black eye. I forget who it was now, but yeah, so that, that'd be a, <laughs> that'd probably be a deal breaker if you showed up with two black eyes and a flat nose for a shoot. I think so. I mean, nowadays, luckily there's Photoshop, <laughs> but, but I don't think it's very appreciated. No, you're right. No, no unless you, oh, wow, that's so obscure. Black eyes, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole new genre new. now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, to be honest, when I started modeling, it was a thing called heroin chic, so it's not far off. <laughs> now that was that the waif kind of era around there. Um, I don't know what you just said. Uh, waif, so, so like the, like the Kate Moss, the very very skinny models yeah, yeah. that we had in the nineties. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I got scouted in nineteen ninety nine. And uh, all my first castings, you know, my parents came with me to London and I'd meet all these photographers on Gosies, and they would literally, we still call them Polaroids, but they're not actual Polaroids, but they'd shoot Polaroids, you know, you'd get to a casting and they'd be like, oh, I just ran out of Polaroids. 
and that would be it <laughs> as in you can go home again and come back later um but it was all analog time you know but it was also the very um lifestyle time of modeling you know lots of partying and stuff and like being being uh, being that young obviously i wasn't in that i wasn't surrounded by that because i wasn't going out or anything but you see it you know you see the people around you you're just you know you just turned 14 and there's 18 19 20 year olds at the same casting and so yeah that heroin chic period was quite it was quite crazy people looked like they were dying quite a lot mm-hmm yeah, and there was also like mm. a, a homeless chic, wasn't there? Like the, the fashion were almost modeling on some of the homeless people, which, which you know, you could argue is in very poor taste as well, really. Yeah. I, I, have you seen Zoolander? Yes. So that really obviously plays on all that, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, derelict. <laughs> <laughs> Just make it into a French word and it sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, seriously, people are very good at that. Yes. <laughs> But um, yeah, very much so. Very unhealthy. Absolutely. Well, I'd l- love to walk then kind of how you even found yourself, you know, even in front of uh, um, agents in the first place. But prior to that, were you always dreaming of modeling? Was there something else in the back of your mind you wanted to do when you graduated? Not at all. Like, at all. Um, I was a big fan of anything with a stage. So I thought I was going to be like a musical theater singer artist something person um and i was a huge fan of disney films and my biggest dream in the world was to dub one to become like a disney princess and be the voice of that i always sang since i was very very little so singing was like my thing so i always thought i was going to do something on a stage or something behind a microphone Um, but I was shopping with my best friend from high school. Um, I think it was, I think it was right before I turned 14 or maybe I was already 14, but like somewhere around there. Um, and we were shopping and I was wearing heels for the first time. And my mom had already been a little bit (laughs) wary of buying me high heels. But everyone in school had them. So obviously I had to have them. And uh, yeah, we were shopping and there were these two ladies and they started talking to me in a high Cockney accent. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what, a, what, a, what, what? <laughs> I had no idea what they were saying. And then they gave me, gave me their business cards and told me a story, but it kind of went in one ear out the other. And uh, I came home and I gave it to my dad. And... He was like, yeah, this is probably not real. I remember him saying that and thinking, oh, well, thanks, Dad. Um, <laughs> but um, he gave them a call and they said, would she be available to come to London? Like, And it, it was so quick. Like, I think this all happened in like a time span of like two weeks. And uh, and we went. And then the rest is history. They made me, you know, they signed me on. I was a new face. Then I actually, about a month ago, I was cleaning my apartment and I found an envelope with old letters in it. And there was a letter of my very first agency. And it said, it was like old school time, right? Letterhead and everything. And it said, dear Doris, we're wondering if you grew over the summer. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, this is the type of communication it used to be. Like, 
how tall are you now? Can you come back? You know? Um, but anyway, yeah, I just basically rolled into it. I never, I never, I never dreamt of it. Um, but then when it was there, I appreciated it because it opened a world, you know, it opened like usually at 18 years old, maybe one or two doors open. It's either a door to a university or, or to like a gap year. And for me, there was like 200 doors that were like just flapping open. And I was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. So it gave me a lot. So you have the the kind of fabled story of I was walking through a mall and an agent stopped me and gave me their card. Yep, that's it. See, I walked around a bunch of agencies in London and gave them my, which I now retrospectively look at as a headshot, not a modeling picture, and never heard from any of them again. So we have conflicting oh stories. <laughs> you know, I would I would say I'm sorry, but I'm quite happy for you. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I was I was fumbling around. I was a, an actor at the time. Well, just let me rephrase that. I had graduated acting school. I, to this day, I'm not a good actor. So, but uh, it was just one of those things at the time. It's kind of what you did. But yeah, I wasn't. That wasn't where I was wanting to head. But yeah, if you if anyone has a giant ego, just go take your photos around agencies and and it'll bring it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fucked up thing. Well, trust me, I can add to that because you can actually also bring it to agencies and they do call you back. But then the next step is they they actually make you go to like 12 castings a day. And most of the time, all 12 of them will turn you away because there's something wrong with you. So <laughs> trust me, getting your headshot not accepted is probably a blessing. Absolutely. Well, it's funny as well, because when I graduated, we did a, a thing called a showcase. And as an actor, you do a monologue and these agents watch you. And I actually had a agent from William Morris, you know, the biggest agency, say, I really like what you do, but what you, the person you would be is not my department, it's my colleague. And then I got told, so when you get a play, let me know and we'll come see. And then I was in London and like, you can't get a play without an agent and you can't get an agent without a play. And that was it. I was, I was stuck in that void. And again, it was a good thing because I'm a terrible actor, but I found myself in the stunt world. But again, yeah, that the auditions and the castings and, and people, I think if you, if you're already fragile mentally, that is a brutal, brutal world to find yourself terrible. in. Terrible. Terrible. So is, is the title of your next book going to be Catch 22? Um, this gonna be Don't Try Acting by James Gearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that catch is terrible. It's actually the same in the acting world when I mean I I haven't been in the acting world, but I hear it a lot that um like you can't get this type of job without being union, but you can't get union without this exactly. particular type of job. <laughs> yep, so that <laughs> okay. catch twenty two. Well, this can take a while, guys. <laughs> yes, yep. Um beautiful. Well then so you you went to that initial casting call. So kind of walk me through your entry into modeling and then what that was like, because obviously 13 is a child. And, you know, we see clearly the impact of that kind of exposure on some of the more famous, you know, Macaulay Culkin and Michael Jackson and some of these, you know, more, not tragic stories, but, you know, some of these obviously added mental health challenges with the fame element so what was that like for you at 13 years old finding yourself in that space well i hear myself say very often thank god i didn't break through um i broke through later in a different way 
But when I was that age, there was one particular casting. And if I ever do write a book, this will definitely be in it. Um, it was a casting for Mew Mew. And back then, the um, to actually take what I said earlier into this conversation, the magazines, the silver screen, like if you were that big, you were that big. If you were a supermodel, you were a supermodel. Like everybody knew you, right? Now there's a zillion models and nobody knows the name of anyone. And so you got something like a Gucci campaign or a you know, Prada campaign, you were like it, right? And it was a Miu Miu casting for their worldwide campaign. And this is back in the day when Holland still had the Gilder and it was a 250,000 pound job. So that back in the day was 750,000 Gilders. So three quarters of a million, right? And I don't think I even know, knew how to write that money. Um, and I went through first casting, second casting, callback. Okay, another callback. Can we take? Can we see more Polaroids? Can she fly in another time? Da da da. I ended up being last two, and the other girl got it. And I was really sad and upset. And like, obviously, at that age, you think. You know, fame is everything, money is everything, all this stuff that is actually really not important. And, um, and I was really upset. And then as my career advanced, I was happier and happier and happier and happier that I didn't get that. Because it would have placed me in the public eye, one. Two, it would have made me extremely vulnerable in my surroundings as my age was so, I was so little, you know. And so I don't know if I would have developed myself as the human that I am now. And three, I would have had too much money to, to know what to do with myself. And I think at that age, that is not a good idea. So obviously my parents would have then kept it in a bank account, yaddy, daddy, daddy. But like as, a, as an on paper type of one, two, three, those three things wouldn't have been good for me, I think. So it went very differently. I didn't get that job. From that moment on, my mother agent in London kind of didn't really try hard for me. I also think that they saw from a distance that I wasn't ready for that type of success. So I found a mother agent in Holland and started doing just the odd job here and there because I was still in high school. So I do like cover of a teenage magazine, you know what I mean? Like just little things. Um, and... Then, only after I had graduated, it became a proper thing, like a proper full-time career that I would spend my time doing what other people were saying because I could kind of channel what I did and did not want to do for this career, right? Um, so, from like 18 to 22, I think, I traveled a lot. It was always like, you know, Milan, Paris, London, Barcelona, like all the close, close countries. And then I went to New York and then I basically got stuck in America <laughs> and lived there for, I mean, on and off about eight years, but seven proper, four years in New York, three years in LA. And, um, and then went back to Holland and only threw the towel in like three months ago. 
And in that time span, I've done a lot of really, really, really fun shoot. I'm so happy with what I've been been able to do. People that I've been able to work with, like great photographers and like so much fun and, and traveling and like getting to see the world. But there was also just a lot of hurry up and wait and a lot of um, how is your weight <laughs> as in, you know, lose it. Um, and a lot of lonely times where you're just traveling on your own, you know, you're just always alone. And I was also quite mismanaged for a couple of those years which basically means that I was always in that kind of like fighting for myself stage. So even though I'm probably with this story selling myself short in the successes that I've reached, I look at it from like a human perspective and I go really, really lucky. Also really, really difficult. And what the hell can I do now? to take all that experience and turn it into something that is not only just good for me, but also for people around me. Right. And so others, you know, I know some models into like environmentalism. Um, I know some models that went into trying to help young models be able to, you know, do the practical stuff, like teaching them how to do their taxes and stuff like that. I know some people that went into the, kind of like uh, activist type of thing. And I grabbed mental health and um, kind of pulled it into a bigger realm, not just modeling, but any type of creative realm. Because I think modeling taught me one thing, that all these things are kind of crossing over. You know, if you're a model, you often find yourself in at parties where there's also actors and singers and dancers and you know, you, you work with makeup artists and stylists and hairstylists and all these people. So there's all these different types of minds and they all have stories and some of them are incredible and some of them are really sad and some of them are never heard. And so here I am running with it. Well, I think it's amazing. I think that's exactly why I have people talk about all the time. There's such a diverse guest list and it's for that reason. Of course, firefighters, you know, have issues X, Y, and Z. But when you start bringing in military and sports people and, you know, models and actors and, and people realize, oh, so we're all having this human experience. It doesn't matter if you wear a uniform or you're in front of a camera. You're not that thing that you do. You're the human being. You're the child that's walking their way through this life. And every good thing has an impact and every bad thing has an impact. Absolutely. 100%. I think that everything that is powerful can go negative and positive. Anything that goes bigger and bigger and bigger can pull on both sides. Um, and I mean, that's why it's so amazing that it's called behind the shield what you do, because yes, we can carry one quite literally, but people also just put them up mentally, emotionally. And I think, I mean, with that crossover, you know, firefighters, soldiers, you know, lieutenants, agents, like all these people. I think there's a lot of talk. For example, uh, you talk about mental health in, in like the army, then everybody will go, oh, PTSD. 
because that's what they know as a link. And it's because that's like the Hollywood version of what mental health is in that realm. But there's such an incredible spectrum, such an incredible spectrum. So there's also a lot of PTSD in non, you know, army jobs. And there's also a lot of other mental health issues in the army, right? So like you pull that out and you dissect it, you speak to someone, then after dissecting it, and it only takes a tiny little while. There's a few questions that if you ask anybody, you'll just get to the human behind it. And yeah, we all, we all deal with it, but in, in different ways. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to, you know, the, the mental health side, you know, your journey in that element. When I hear you talking about, was it Miu Miu you said? I, I didn't recognize the brand. So that campaign, it almost mirrors thinking that you were accepted by that group in school and then the last minute having the rug pulled out from under you. Would Did you have any kind of experience of that parallel when you were the 13-year-old girl almost making it to that campaign? I mean, I don't know. Like, almost getting that campaign made me, in my head, I had had it, right? I'd gotten the job. And so in my head, I was already becoming friends with everybody because I now was cool <laughs> enough because of this campaign. Um, so like I said, not getting it was really good because it made me develop myself as not that, right? But I don't know. Big things, like you just said, big things, right? They can pull negative. They can pull positive. Um, you can say, what if, and everything would have been different then. If I would have gotten the campaign, what would have happened? I now put that in a negative light by saying, if I would have had it, this wouldn't have been good for me. I don't know that. Maybe I would have come out an incredible person. I don't know. Um, but we can't see that because it didn't happen. So all I could do then was anticipate what would happen if I would get it. And all I can do now is look back and say, it's great that I didn't get it. Because for all the wrong reasons, I probably would have changed who I am. Right? Yeah, and I think you're right. I really do. Yeah. So when on this journey, then you find yourself modeling very young, as you said, you then end up doing more domestic stuff back in the Netherlands. When did you start experiencing anxiety, depression, whatever the kind of mental health first red flags that you were aware of? So this took me a long time to actually um, discover um, because I had had, I basically had my first physical panic attack at 19 years old. I was sitting in a restaurant and all of a sudden I thought that the world was ending and like the balls were like coming towards me and I couldn't breathe and my palms were sweaty and my mouth was dry. Like, you know, panic attack 101 um, standard, right? But before that, I had already had a lot of issues that were very different that expressed that probably same issue in a different way. So, I mean, we spoke about migraines. I had, for example, a very traumatic experience that has that haunted me for a really long time um, where um, physical education, we were going to go to the swimming pool 
but people had bullied me so much with being skinny that I didn't dare to go because I'd have to go in a swimsuit. Right. And, um, so I, I told my mom, I'm not going to go. And as free and open and, and amazing as my parents always were, they did try to not put their wing over me at all times. Right. So my mom always had this role. You try, you can't do it. You come home. Right. So like she wouldn't, she wouldn't just let me stay home because I was bullied or something. Right. She knew what was going on, but she, and that made me a lot stronger, but I really didn't want to go. And she said, no, but you go, you know what our rule is like, you try, can't do it, come home. And so I didn't want to bike to school because I was already so nervous. So I took public transport and I got on the tram and from my parents, the first stop has a traffic light in between. So it has to actually stand there and then get over the road. And right in front of the traffic light, I felt nauseous. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to make it. And then as it turned green and the tram started going, I threw up in the tram. And about five people laughed at me. And the conductor who was sitting in the back, who's working, right? And I'm, I'm like 12 at this point, 13, maybe. I was in like first year of high school. The guy actually looks at me and goes, you're going to clean that up? And then this old lady, very, such cute lady. She looks like, she looked like a church lady, like grabbed a, um, like a Kleenex or something out of her purse and came and said, don't listen to them and gave the Kleenex to me. And I, you know, wiped my mouth and I got out of the tram and then I was like, oh, but I only made it one stop. Like, I can't just go home now because my mom will think that I didn't try. And so I stayed on the tram stop for like half an hour, just sitting there feeling so overwhelmed and nauseous. And like, I just, I didn't know what to do with myself and then walked home. And my mom was like, Oh, you're early. And I was like, Oh yeah, I just threw up in the tram and I told her a story. And then as I was telling it to her, I realized that I didn't want to make the people that said all those things to me win. So I said, I'm going to go. And I grabbed the tram and I actually went to school and went to the swimming pool then opened my back on a slide because I was very skinny. So (laughs) I had like a scratch on my back and then I'd had it and then I went home. And so much later in life, I realized that when I was living in New York and I was having a breakdown, um, subway started scaring me and I started to get nauseous in like public transportation situations. And I started feeling really like sweaty in at like bus stops and stuff like that. And I realized, Oh my God, that was already so much to do with my mental health. Like that was basically just anxiety. Right. But I never knew. I thought it was just because I was bullied, but even if that was the case, it still was mental health. Right. So those things quite happened quite often. Um, you know, my, my, my migraines started at some point and I would always have migraines after I got too excited about something. So it would be like me celebrating my birthday and knowing that this girl that I thought was really cool was coming. And I just wouldn't sleep for like three days because I wanted to have these friends, right? I wanted to be this person that had cool kids around her. And so I like wouldn't sleep and then we'd go climbing and I'd obviously like drink zero water and be so fucking like excited 
and I come home and have a have a migraine and be in bed for 12 hours. So the the proper expression of my mental health in the way that people know it and kind of know what to do, the brown paper bag situation wasn't until 19. But looking back, I think I was dealing with a lot of stuff from before. And then even when I had the panic attacks at 19, I didn't have the vocabulary to actually tell people what I was feeling. And I thought I was the only one, like everyone, <laughs> everyone who has this think that they're the only one. And so I just didn't talk about it. And right at 19, when that happened with the panic was also at the high point of like me, you know, moving across the world and like kind of reinventing the wheel for myself, you know, and, um, yeah, I just, I just never recognized it until much, much later, I think maybe seven, eight years ago. And I was like, I was at the peak of my fears and my anxieties. And like, I didn't dare to go in the subway anymore. And that's difficult when you live in Brooklyn. And <laughs> um, there was all this shit. It was just, it was fucking with my life way too much. It was just on the daily. And so I couldn't run away from it anymore. And I was like, okay, well, I have, I have a choice here. I can start talking about it and see if there's a way out. Only way out is through is cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. Um, or hide forever and probably kill myself at some point because this is not life. And then I got really scared of myself because that thought made me think that I was suicidal. And I thought, well, fuck, that's not worth it. Like if I want to die right now, that's not worth it because life is still in front of me. So I'm like right in the middle of it. And then I started talking about it. And I started talking about it with the randomest of people. Like I talked to a person next to me on a plane. I talked to somebody in a restaurant. I was, I was often alone and I actually really like, I enjoy being alone. Um, so I'd go out for dinner by myself and I'd like, you know, start a conversation with the barman or whatever. And I kid you not, I think 99 out of hundred people. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that reflected the same feelings. <laughs> And we're like, oh my God, you're so brave for talking about that. I've never shared this with anybody. And I realized that I was, you know, in my 20s, there were people that were like 55 and saying, I've never talked about this with anybody. And through those conversations, I realized that I actually had never wanted to die. I just didn't know how to live with this. I didn't know how to continue life as I knew it because I wasn't actually discovering it as an honest to myself person. I was looking for everything on the outside, right? And so that's the point where I started realizing the traumas from before, started doing EMDR, um, really helped me, really, really helped me. I had two different EMDR therapists and they were both incredible. And I still do that once in a while, kind of as maintenance when things, when like big events happen in my life, I basically just go back and do that. And um, yeah, I mean, like I touched on earlier, whatever you do and whoever you are, everybody deals with something. And so this was just 
coming at me from all sides. And it sounds very weird to say I enjoyed that because I don't want to enjoy other people's misery. But I really enjoyed that there was a connection between just absolutely everybody and me. And so it made me realize as well that that stranger on the plane is not a stranger on a plane. It's that person is supposed to be there at that moment. And, you know, let's be friends because there is a lot of crossover experience in this thing called life, you know, as a human. And so instead of finding it really, really difficult to be human, I started to find it quite fun to be human because there was all this interconnectivity that, you know, inspired me and fed me and like all that stuff. So, yeah. It was so powerful to hear because there you are on a modeling path having the exact same experience that I hear so many people from all backgrounds including you know the tactical professions I everyone else is doing fine I'm I'm the only one that's feeling like this I'm being a pussy I'm weak I'm you know insert whatever self-degradation and you pull the curtain back and like you said everyone's hurt and I just had I've got almost 600 episodes now and we don't always get to the mental health side. It, it depends. I open the door and if people kind of walk through with their early childhood or whatever it was. But I just had a, a kind of very world-famous um, strength and conditioning coach. And the first 30 minutes were about his childhood and his dad was a World War II vet and he was an alcoholic. And, you know, so every single person you see, and like you said, it doesn't mean that it's going to destroy you, but this you know we all have these experiences these good ones these bad ones and and then what they do whether they make us worse they make us better but by having conversations it pulls down that facade that everyone's okay i mean your world you know you're in front of a camera wow that person looks you know bulletproof you know that that photographer they they're on top of the world and they're always so happy and then behind the scenes they're happy because they're on cocaine because they're trying to fill a void because of what happened before the conductor on the tram what was his life like that he was so lacking in compassion? And I think that's a very powerful thing is that you remember the bad things that happened to you, but you also remember the people that were kind to you. So we each have a choice to actually make that impression, whether it's a friend or a stranger, with how we treat people. Yeah, yeah, for sure, 100%. And, and actually... Now that you've said this, I'm going to tell the story of the stranger on the plane because it's actually a pretty good one. Um, I was on my way to New York and I was with my mom and my mom is uh, very afraid of flying. So I sat in the middle. She sat on the window side and on the aisle side, there was a huge tree of a guy. And already upon like boarding and like having to get past him, he was just this, like, this wall, just a wall. And I was like, oh, fun. This person is not going to talk to me at all. <laughs> and um, I'm the most curious person ever. So I always want to like find something and like make the experience kind of like worthwhile, right? And anyway, smiled at him a couple times. Didn't happen. You know, like food came. He was just, he was kind of like, he looked like a robot. But his right hand was in a bandage. And I at some point asked what had happened. And in the most, like, I don't want to say in the most male way, because that would be the society's projection of that. But like, in the most 
shut off way. He was like, oh, bar fight. And my stomach was like, that wasn't a bar fight. Like my, my body just told me that was absolutely not a bar fight. Anyway, I left it. And then as we got closer to New York, he started to be really uncomfortable in his seat, but like really uncomfortable. And I looked over and he really composedly put himself super straight with, you know, one arm on one armrest, one arm on the other armrest, like legs, like completely parallel and like, you know, perpendicularly on the ground and like very composed, extremely. And I was like, he's scared. He's trying to compose himself because he's just not relaxed. And so I actually put my hand on his arm and said, are you okay? And his energy completely opened up and like almost crumbled. And he said, I will be. And I said, I'm here to talk if you want, you know, like, I don't know what's going on, but like, you know, your hand is bandaged up. You're like, you know, I don't know. You were in transit because you're an American. Are you going, going home? And so we started talking and he opened up more and more and more and more and more. And after about 20 minutes, he basically was, he wasn't crying, but he was very choked up. And he told me that it was really difficult for him to go back to New York because it was his first time to go back home after both his parents had died in 9-11. And so he was a soldier and he went into the army out of wrath, I almost want to say, right? Like out of like a grudge. And he just wanted to kill everybody in the world because his, his parents got killed, you know? And so he was an 18 year old boy who went into the army and actually got deployed right away. Do you call it deployed? Yes. Yeah. Um, and got deployed right away. And then he wasn't in a bar fight. Something happened there. And whoever he was under told him, you're not stable. You got to go home, you know, and sent him on a plane. And so had I not talked to this guy ever, I could have now been telling this story like, oh, yeah, there was this really unsympathetic guy sitting on the plane. Like he wasn't even talking to me like he was such a douche. But nobody is just a douche. <laughs> Everybody's multifaceted, you know, and his story wasn't a small one. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, he was he was behaving like a douche because someone, you know, stole his Metro card. It, it, both his parents had passed in a huge like worldwide event, right? Like this is insane. So talking to this guy really gave me a perspective on, you know, the stranger on the plane and coming to stranger anywhere. You know, we choose to be strangers a lot, but I think if we just choose that nobody really is a stranger and we all have something that we can fight for one another in, then the world would also just be such a much kinder place. Absolutely. Well, thank you for t sharing that story. I mean, that that's such a great illustration of exactly what we're talking about. And it actually reminds me, I flew quite a bit the last year or so. And what was really sad is you know, this, they got the mask mandates on the planes. I don't know if they've finally got rid of that or not. But you had people with the masks and a hat and headphones and you just shut everyone off. And where I would normally be, I'm the, I'm the kind of guy that will talk to the Uber driver, you know, I'd, like it's an opportunity to, to interact with someone. You never know what you might learn or maybe even maybe your, you know, words will do something good for them. Um, and, uh, but it's sad because the last couple of flights I had, it was a robot because, you know, they literally didn't 
couldn't talk they had headphones in and, and their mouth was covered and so was mine and so you just had these beady little eyes looking around um but yeah and i think it's so important i love you know like you said that that changing that from oh it's a stranger to this is this is someone who's been put in front of me and i agree with that wholeheartedly yeah it's 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 interesting uh what you say that it's kind of almost dehumanized a lot of this stuff i mean with covid we saw like you just said, with the masks and everything. Um, during COVID, something happened that I found extremely ironic. Um, you know, I want to say back in the day, but basically just a couple of years ago in a supermarket, you just have cashiers, right? You had store clerks and they help you if you can't find something and then they beep your stuff and like you have a little like, hey, how's your day going or whatever, right? And it all became self-checkout, right? Everything became self-checkout. And then now at the, at the tail end of COVID, there was this article sent to me by one of my followers on Instagram that read Holland or Netherlands introduces uh, real human cashiers for people who are lonely. And I started reading the article and it was about how the country I'm from has opened like real human cashiers and I'm like didn't we always have that? like is it we wait what and I really like I I basically laughed I was like is this is this article some kind of spoof like I, I thought it was a joke but it wasn't a joke it was it was serious it was like oh my god there's this country that actually has actual people who like beep your stuff and you can like talk to them and I'm like oh my god <laughs> like where have we gone and then I realized that the whole article was about emphasizing people that need other people when they're lonely or when their mental health is lacking. So now if someone does not go to self-checkout, everybody knows that they're not feeling well, which is very not anonymous. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, why can't we all just have a real person? But exactly. Like, it you don't have to have a mental health crisis to want to talk to someone. I do the same thing. There can yeah. be a bank of self-checkouts. I always go to the person because same. I like people. You know, that's kind of what we've done as a species since the beginning of time. Exactly. And it's it's actually funny because I always say I hate people because I do, but I also love people. <laughs> so you hate, it's kind you of hate like, mean people probably. No, I just, I just don't. I mean, I'm saying this actually from Mumbai, which is very ironic, but I just don't like when there's a lot of people in one place. So I, I don't necessarily like going to like really packed like cafes and clubs and stuff, you know, and I did it and I tried it and it's tried and true that that is not my vibe. And it drives me to drink when I am, when I am doing it. So that's also not a good thing, but yeah, I'm, I am a people person, but I'm a very one-on-one -on -one person, you know? And I, I love when there's discovery to be made. So, yeah, I always, I mean, you said Uber driver. I have the best conversations <laughs> in Ubers. I love it. Absolutely love it. And often when it's people that you're never going to see again, they really open up because they know that you're not going to see them again. So they like, they tell you their whole life story. And I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I had that. I've told the story a couple of times on here, but um, my wife and I, Took an Uber, being responsible. We just go in, you know, to a restaurant. We knew we were going to have a few drinks a few months ago now. And the Uber driver bringing us back was this amazing gay um, black guy who was born and bred in San Francisco. 
And so we start talking and he gets to the destination and we're in such a great conversation that we sit there and we carry on. He's talking about how San Francisco is such an expensive place to live that you have a lot of homeless people who probably wouldn't have been homeless in other towns, but they're homeless because they can't afford it there. And we were like, oh, we never thought of it that way. Um, And anyway... We get an alert from Uber. He gets an alert from Uber. Are you okay? Do you need us to call 911? Just because we've stopped and we've had a conversation. And it's, you know, it's a great safety mechanism, but it was almost like funny. Like, oh, you guys are talking. Are you okay? You know, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of hilarious, but I, I totally get the, the safety element, of course, but just enjoying the conversation so much that he wasn't worried about his next fare he was so engaged that we sat in the parking lot of you know my my, uh, wife's apartment she's in med school for god probably 10 plus minutes before we actually got out and said goodbye to him that's awesome now what you said about the the crowds as well i'm the same and i i've kind of always i guess i've never really analyzed it but i had a friend of mine went through horrendous addiction alcoholism and Came out the other end. Uh, he's been on the show a couple of times. He's an amazing, amazing recovered alcoholic who has a um, CrossFit group where they're all, you know, um, addicts of all shapes and sizes that come together. They have community, they have exercise. Um, but when I asked him, and I'll ask you this at the end, about a book you recommend, he said, oh, there's a, there's a book called, I think it was The Introvert's Edge. So anyway, I post the the article and then I get an email from the author who's just very savvy online. And because I'd written that in the in the description of the, the episode, he ended up coming on. And he Amazing. said, so what this blew me away. So he said, the way you can basically figure out if you're an extrovert or an introvert. And I kind of thought myself, yeah, I'm kind of an extrovert-ish. Um, you can go to places. You can be around people. But it's where you want to recharge. If you get your energy from intimate relationships, you're an introvert. I am an introvert. I don't freak out when I go to a concert, but there's a time where people look around and I'm just gone because I'm all right. I'm, I'm off because I, that's not where I get my power from. Is that kind of the same with you? Like you're okay being around that? Obviously, you know, a lot of stuff that you did was around crowds, but where you're kind of really leveling up is that intimate personal interaction again? 100% and the people who are listening to this won't see that I've been nodding my head for like five minutes now. <laughs> um, I really identify with that. And uh, um, yeah, I knew about that, that recharging thing. And I always tell people I'm a, I'm a, I'm a social introvert. So I'm not an extroverted introvert. I'm a social introvert. So I, I, I love social settings. I really do. I love, you know, game night or like, going to a cafe and grabbing a bite or whatever. But when I'm not comfortable with anything in my life, and especially if it's two out of three things or three out of four things, and it's like things are out of balance, I basically just want to be alone. And the only person then I let in is like, you know, the people very close to me. Like my best friend can always be around me. My mom can always be around me. My partner can always be around me. Other than that, I I, I, I just can't. So very often... People will invite me to things and I'll be like, I still want to be invited, but I also want to be able to say no. And I just, I won't come. And my friends now know that that is a big part of me. They were disappointed often because they thought I just didn't want to go. But it's not that I didn't want to go. At that moment, I didn't have the capacity to then see 25 people. 
not because I don't like them, but probably because I do like them and I want to give them all this energy, but I don't have the energy. So especially going to things that I actually like actually doesn't happen that much because I know that it will drain me. So I'm very, very picky with, yeah, my social outings, so to say. I was literally just nodding my head the entire time you were talking because I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I feel that. I feel that. Well, I mean, I, I look at myself, you know, I same exact thing that you said. Like, I'd love to go out, you know, have dinner with friends, you know, with my wife and, you know, a few friends or have them over or, you know, these conversations. Obviously, I mean, now I've managed to find a way of making a living having intimate conversations. It's incredible. But, you know, oh, we're going to go to this bar, you know, with all the freaking crowds and the damn TVs every 12 feet and you know that drives me crazy and it's the same people i want to hang with i just don't want to be in a place that seems like you're in a vegas casino i want to be somewhere chill where like you said we can actually interact and have quality conversations yeah yeah well i mean uh i uh just said it in passing but i i've done it a lot i've done a lot of like big parties and thought that was really me but the thing is i can only do it when i drink a lot and so then it becomes a hand-in-hand thing where I'm basically just drinking to get myself through being in a space where there's a lot of people. And that kind of defeats the purpose, you know? But I do think that this is why a lot of people drink so much because I think there's a lot more people like me than I think. <laughs> I always think that I'm so weird for being, you know, the, the hermit. But I think a lot of people have, you know, social anxiety, social pressure, peer pressure, all that type of stuff. Dating. Dating, my God, so scary. Dating is so scary. I don't know how people do that. Go to a bar, you get rejected a couple times, you go home drunk. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand how people do that. Um, but yeah, so yeah, although I love people, I don't like people. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny with the drinking as well because Chad talks about that. I know, I can think of definitely one other guest recently that t- touched on that as well. If you have to drink to be around that place, the answer is to not be around that place in the first place. And I think you're absolutely right. Alcohol is definitely subconsciously used as a drug for social anxiety, more so than people realize. 100%. And I think the biggest reason for that is that it's so extremely socially accepted. Like society has just made no rules for it except for don't drink and drive. That's a big one, obviously. And for very good reason. But in in social setting, I mean, it's in every movie. It's in every show. It's like, you know, you go to a city and you go to a souvenir shop and it has magnets that say the best stories come from hangovers or whatever, you know. And it's like, it's it's almost pushed into a lot of things. You know, you do a red carpet, you come off it. There's not glasses of water for people. There's glasses of champagne. You have to like ask for it. I went to a birthday party about three years ago and it was open bar and I wasn't drinking at the time. And I said, can I have a sparkling water? And he said, yeah, sure. That'll be 380. And I said, excuse me, it's open bar. And he said, yeah, open bar is only for beer, wine and cocktails. And I had to pay for my water. Yeah. And then he said, I can make you, I can make you um, a virgin cocktail if you want. And I was like, sure. Is there sparkling water in there? (laughs) You know? He was like, yeah, I can make you like a virgin, uh, a virgin mojito or something. And I'm like, okay, make me a virgin mojito. Hold the sugar, hold the lime. Just give me a fucking sparkling. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
like just stop it <laughs> and so it, it made me realize at that party how difficult it is for people to like you know have that like go out and and be that because one of the first things that happens when you say no i don't drink people just say oh why and i'm like that's quite personal why do i have to explain myself why do i have to justify maybe i have work tomorrow maybe i just came from work maybe i just never drank a drop in my life but a lot of people don't drink because they did drink and it's you don't have to justify that it's it's very it's very quite annoying and i know a lot of people that actually are sober from you know being an alcoholic and so i've been in that environment quite a lot where i sat next to a friend who was just constantly explaining himself you know for not drinking I'm like what are we even doing here so it's very it's very socially accepted to you know drinking games and act stupid and all that type of stuff I'm like so for me for me to want that to be able to get through it completely defeats the purpose for me that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy my wine and my cocktail and my you know I enjoy it thoroughly but not because something is telling me that I should anymore I will add more. <laughs> yeah, well, I was the same way. I'm actually, I'm, I'm almost to three months of no alcohol just because I wanted to hit a hard stop because I was relying on it. You know, I was depending on it. And it wasn't, again, to drown anything out. It wasn't drinking myself you know, to oblivion. It was just that, like you said, the most socially acceptable. A couple of beers after work, you know, a couple of glasses of wine with dinner, whatever. Um, but it reminds me when I was, and this is always weird to American ears, but I was sober from 16 to 19. I had a really bad alcohol incident on a ski trip with my friend and his parents. Um, didn't drink for three years. So we'd go to pound a pint nights at these bars and I'd be the designated driver because I didn't drink. And their beers were 99, you know, 99p or a pound or whatever it was that day. And my glass of orange juice would be three pounds. And I'm like, you fucking kidding me? How am I paying yeah. three pounds more to be the responsible one of the group? This is bullshit. So yeah, I yeah. can totally understand. Yeah, I think it should be a little bit easier for people. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to how you made the transition to behind the camera. But just before we do, you've kind of walked us through your own individual path. What were some of the the mental health elements that you were seeing amongst the model community in general? Now, again, as I touched on the beginning, body dysmorphia seems to be one of the ones that people are somewhat aware of, which, you know, when you look back again, seems to be a mental health issue at the end of the day. Um, you know, so what, what have you experienced the modeling community in general is suffering from when it comes to mental health? Huge lack of support. Um, it's a very alone career. So everything that is asked from you is asked from you in a, you better do it type of way. So you're doing all these things that you think are normal, but you're kind of overstraining yourself and then doing it all alone. So that comes into, you know, like standing up for yourself financially, you know, standing up for yourself. If they have put you into a group that is very, whatever, untrustworthy, there's, there's, as in every industry, there's a lot of people you can't trust. Um, but you're put in the industry as something that is supposed to be this pillar because you're actually selling something, you're showing something, you're supposed to be that strong image that people makes people want to own something. But at the same time, they make you feel really, really small. So um, it's very unsupportive as a human. You're basically just like a mannequin 
and you can feel that a lot. Um, I must say, early on in saying this, um, that this is changing a lot. I see quite a few models now that have very good careers and full-blown careers and are very supported by their agents and all that. And there's, there's unions now and obviously there's social media. So people are talking, people are very talkative about these things. Um, the good side of social media. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of movements and me too was one of those, for example, and it has opened up a lot of conversation and therefore it's now safer because you can speak up. Um, in my time that wasn't there yet so that's also unsupported and then yeah i mean the body dysmorphia is a big one i mean clients would often give a reason well actually frequently they don't give a reason why they don't want you basically what's happening is that you're just not the type that they're looking for and instead of just saying that they say nothing and it makes you feel very unseen but then there's your agent and they have maybe already kind of upscaled and sold it to you saying like, oh, this client really needs to see you because you might have to do something for it. You might have to fly somewhere. You might have to get up at the crack of sparrows. You might have to, you know, and so they sell it to you. They're like, oh, this client is amazing. And like, if you do this job, they're definitely going to book you back. You know, you do this one, like, I know, it, I know it's a lot of money, not a lot of money for this job. But if they like you, they'll definitely use you for their campaign next time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's all bullshit. Not one client has ever booked me for almost no money and then all of a sudden paid me well for a campaign. That doesn't happen. And so you get sold a lot of stuff that you then need to kind of set like up with yourself. So there's this gigantic pressure of being that person that they expect. And so for me, uh, I can't say this for everyone, but for me personally, this happened quite a lot with the fact that um, I did quite a lot of jobs where I was very free with my body, as in I've done quite a lot of nude stuff. And I always only did what I felt comfortable with within an artistic realm. So I didn't want to be that like pinup girl, not because I think there's something wrong with it, but because it's not me. And I also did a lot of jobs because I used to dance. I used to do a lot of jobs where they were looking for girls that could move, right? So my agent would call me and would be like, or one of my agents, because it's like you have an agent in every country. They would call and be like, hey, this client really wants someone who has a dance background. Can you go to the casting, right? But then other people's inadequacy will then make you the inadequate one. So you'll come to a casting and they'll just be like, yeah, so could you do this and this and this for us? And they put you in an outfit that absolutely doesn't suit that or that you can't move in or like the photographer and the stylist are nitpicking over something and you're just in the middle just standing there. And so there's a lot where you feel like you weren't good enough, but it's because what was expected of you wasn't fair. So it's like going to a tryout to be a basketball player at four foot eight. It's like if this team actually wants a short player and the, the agent called and like recruited somebody, you know, at a high school and said, we actually really want a short player. Okay, cool. Then nothing's wrong. But if they sell it to you, like, oh, you're going to be this amazing basketball player. Come, come. And you do the tryout, but you're four, eight. You can't, you know, 
like then you feel inadequate. But it wasn't fair in the first place because they expected something of you, but the basket is way too high for you, right? And this, this for me personally really played with my mental health, that I was just never good enough. But it's not because I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough for that specific thing they asked of me. And it took me a while to see the discrepancy, you know, to actually be like, okay, well, hey, that's actually not my fault. Um, and that has to do with height and weight and the way you wear your hair. <laughs> And the way you go about your daily life as a person, as a non-model, right? So, yeah, lots of lots of angles, I think, that make it really difficult for people in that industry to keep their to keep their mind aligned and balanced. It's it's for a lot of people very very out of whack. Um, and I think I'm not the only one. No, not <laughs> I think I'm very very sure that. I'm not the only one who has gone through that res- retrospective thing, you know, c- kind of like having that build up in a career. And then after five, six or 10 or 15 years going, wait, what am I doing? Why am I doing everything this person is telling me? I'm not one of those monkeys that you can put a quarter in or like wind up. Hold on. And this like stop the tape moment was a little late for me, to be honest. <laughs> I should have had that moment earlier. <laughs> well, you touched on the the Me Too movement. Uh, obviously, you know, I, I would assume if you have got, you know, well-respected agents that they're never going to send you anywhere that's going to be dangerous for a young girl or young boy. Um, but, you know, then I have people on the show who were lured, I mean, this is a totally different kind of path, but they were lured with modeling careers end up being human trafficked. So, you know, what are the ways that young boys and girls or, you know, young men and women can make sure that they are going to legit modeling jobs if they don't have like the most respected agents at the moment? Um, That's a very difficult question. Or it's not a difficult question. It's difficult for me to answer it Um, because there is a lot of agencies. In Holland alone, there's like, I don't know, 30 or 40. Like, it's insane. Um, And you never really know. Like, I was kind of, I was scammed. Not really scammed, but I I was mismanaged and mistreated by some of the biggest names in the industry. And I also know people that had full-blown careers with very tiny, small agencies that wouldn't even have a website. So there's, it's very difficult to gauge that. And because it's a very fragile industry where there's also a lot of things like, you know, the, the club promoters trying to get the models in and the fact that models come from various countries where there's different backgrounds. I mean, I heard a lot of the human trafficking stories with um, Russian and Ukrainian girls um, in my early days, um, where they were either promised a modeling or a dancing career and would end up like behind a window or losing their passport or like ter- horrible stories, like horrible. But I don't necessarily think that that's, that's to gauge with what agency you're with. I mean, you can kind of tell how legit something is on, you know, paperwork, communication, um, website, how's their PR? Do they have an Instagram that is solid, right? Like all that type of stuff is kind of on the outside. But once you join an agency and your pen touches the paper and you've signed, there's still a lot that can happen. 
and it's not human trafficking, but sometimes I go, if you now take the magnifying glass off, it's still that, but just in a minuscule way. Right. Um, I, I, I could, and I, I might at some point write a book about the experiences that I've had that were actually quite inhumane to say the least actually. And that has a lot to do with pushing by people that don't know what they're pushing towards. So like agents pushing a model to go see a photographer and they don't know that that photographer is a douche or a predator or knowing full well that he is. And I'm saying he now because it's mostly men Um, and saving their own ass because nobody's come out with it yet. And you see it, you see it happen. I mean, with the Me Too movement, you see it happen a lot that one woman comes forward, then maybe a second or a third drizzle in. And once there's three, there's like 30. And then, and then where do you gauge things, you know? So like, I think, I think literally as in everything, especially jobs that don't have human resources and like, legal teams on board. So anything, I mean, a lot of creative jobs, it's very easy to fall into a hole of, or a web, let's call it a web of false promises, gold mountains, lies, you know, inadequate support and all that. And I think it's very important to teach yourself to think on your feet and always listen to your gut. Like, always because there's a lot of things that are promised but if you don't care about the things that are promised you can also not fall into that hole so like you can you can you can you can tell me oh but if you do this then you get to spend three weeks on a yacht well i don't want to spend three weeks on a yacht so that's fine tell me what it's actually about right so often when things are promised that are really big then you can kind of already tell that it's not real and this is something that a lot of young girls really, really fall for. And I've, I've seen it. I've seen it a lot. It's really sad. Like 16-year-old girls just going out every night and ending up being, you know, kind of like escort ladies. Or And again, I actually have nothing against escorts, if that's what you want, if that's your choice. But if it's something that you kind of have to choose to get yourself out of something because what you did want seems to be fake or too far away then i think it's the promises that somebody made that you were into so i think it's always really important to stay realistic with what somebody's offering i lived in japan in osaka for 15 months and i remember the only gaijin were one of three groups there was a lot of us which was universal studios um, performers there were the exchange english teachers and then there were Eastern European models. Now, 20 years later, I look back and go, were they modeling or were they actually part of something else? And I, you know, I, they were, you know, tall, pretty women. But yeah, it does make me question now if they were there, if they were actually doing what they thought they'd be doing in Japan. I, 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 I can tell you, um, yes and no. Um, I did a couple contracts in Japan as well. And there is definitely a lot of people that do that. They go there for modeling for a short stint. Um, there's a lot of things like TV commercials and, 
and like magazines that are really good to do there to like build up your portfolio because um, they have the things like Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and all those things. But like to get like a British Harper's or like an American Vogue is like really difficult. But to get like a Japanese Vogue or a Japanese Harper's is easier. So you go there to build up your portfolio, make a bit of money and like learn the ropes. Um, and very fun, by the way. Um, I had a really good time. But <laughs> there are also clubs there that then kind of recruit the models that aren't working enough. And I don't know how that would be now, but back in the day, you'd get an offer on a contract. And let's let's just call an amount for the ease of the story. Let's just say the agency says, you're going to be here for three months and we offer you $20,000. Then you say yes or no. And if you say yes, then you work your way up to that 20000 They are guaranteed to give you it after I think a month or so. If you didn't work enough in that month, they can let you go. But what happens a lot is that girls won't work for like two weeks and then all of a sudden it picks up. And in those two weeks, they're working like a bunch and then it slows down again. And so they have a lot of free time. And then there's recruiters that actually recruit those models that aren't working enough to become this thing called a hostess. And I've seen that a lot. I've seen a lot of the models that weren't necessarily what fashion brands would be looking for or editorial clients would be looking for. And, you know, they'd be recruited. And next thing you know, they're waiting tables in very, very, very short skirts. So that does happen. It's a yes and no. Um, and especially in, in Japan and Korea, that tends to happen quite a lot. And especially because those particular Asian countries um, see white women as like something godly. Um, people never believe me when I tell this story. I just told it a couple days ago. It actually happened to me several times in Japan that people would go on, on one knee, like in the middle of the street. Someone I would not know. I would be crossing the street and somebody would go on one knee as if they were like praying to me or like asking me to marry me, marry them. So there's the, that, that thing too. There's an, another element of like um, almost an obsession with white skin and stuff. Yeah. I remember, I remember seeing that obviously because you, you'd see all these uh, commercials of our Western actors, you know, I and mean, they'd be everywhere over there. You know, you'd never see them do a, aftershave or a whiskey commercial in in the uk or america and then brad pitt's doing suntory in japan um but the other thing and I, I don't know if this is the same kind of club that you're talking about but i remember in osaka there'd always be these japanese men in suits and they would literally be stopping people as you're going by in shinsaibashi or wherever you were and almost like opening a menu and i don't know if that menu included you know being weighted by by young ladies or not but it was a, a definitely a very aggressive solicitation of people to come to these clubs happens happens a lot and i found myself at a at a, a dinner once where i you know i went with a couple of the girls that were also in the agency um and i'd made some friends that were in my neighborhood and we all went for a dinner and then somebody invited us to come somewhere and I was like, oh, fun, let's go. And I was <laughs> so naive. We ended up actually going to like a, it wasn't really a club, but more like a, 
almost like a like a cigar lounge type thing, you know, men drinking whiskey, smoking cigars. But then all of a sudden seeing like all these girls walking around and I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> what, what, what is this about? Um, and I very, very quickly came to find out that it was Yakuza owned. So Japanese mafia. And um, I made my way out of there pretty damn quickly. Um, Luckily, I realized fast enough that I was in a place where I shouldn't be. But yeah, I mean, it is kind of like it is in the movies sometimes, you know? It's, uh, is it life imitating art or is it art imitating life, right? I mean, we make movies about things that actually happen and then things actually happen that are like in the movies and we're like, oh my God, that is so like the movies. No, but that movie was made because it actually happened, <laughs> right? So, um. Yeah, I mean, it happens a lot and it happens a lot in different places, you know? I mean, I'm saying that about Japan right now, but like in New York, I saw a lot of that high society, you know, Gramercy Park, Rose Bar, you know, expensive hotels. Not, not pure, not right, you know? Um, and I saw it quite from a distance because you actually just asked me, how did that go from um, in front of to behind the camera? It's actually a very good segue because um, I got a camera from my dad when I was like 12 and I really liked documentary photography. And so I did photography in school, but it was all analog, right? So I'd go into the dark room and like develop my own pictures and stuff. So when I started traveling, it was just me and the camera always. So like I have books and books and books of negatives from, you know, Japan and the countries that we just spoke about. And I loved it. So like when I say I found myself in these places, it's not actually because I went with those men or like, because I went with, you know, I'm just, I'm a very curious person as I saw said earlier. So I always wanted to see like all these sides of these cultures and these, you know, customs. And so yeah, I I always created kind of situations for myself where I would have an amazing story after. But within that, I have also found myself in places where I was like, ooh, Doris, one step too far. Maybe you should get out of here. Maybe this is not a really good idea for a 19-year-old blonde white girl. You know what I mean? Um, or any girl, actually. But I just happen to be a white blonde. Um. So yeah, it was more so the curiosity and that curiosity brought me everywhere. And it also is the one reason that I'm behind the camera right now. Curiosity is key, I think, in human life. If you're curious to what another human is doing or an animal or anything, nature can be anything, then you're always asking questions. And where there's questions, there's answers. And the more we know, the less we know. But the more we want to find out, the more we gain also knowledge about ourselves because it's always about the connection or correlation between us and someone or something, but also the contrast, right? How boring would it be if we were all the same? So yeah, I'm just a really curious person. And this, this drove me to move from still image to film um, as one still image can definitely paint a picture. I mean, if a picture paints a thousand words, but a film paints a thousand more, I think. You know, you can tell a proper story. It's moving. Um, you have sound. So you have voice. 
you have mannerism, you have movement, you know, everything tells a story. So um, basically everything I do in film or photography is uh, humans, humans and their stories. Beautiful. Well, I think I agree completely. And there's no better time to to really get into that space than now, because I think I think documentaries are the new movies, to be honest. I mean, some of the documentaries that are put out now are beautiful. And even some of the projects, I don't know if you're aware of one, it's called Suff White Underbelly. And uh, he's a photographer, but he also does uh, interviews that he will film. And even like, you know, the, the lighting and, and the black and white that he uses, it makes it beautiful. But he... I think he's based in LA because a lot of these people are from Skid Row, but they'll be, you know, gang members, clan members, you know, addicts. And just, I mean, these are all human beings and he does a very good job of making them human. I just shared one the other day of a, a guy who's a, I think he's a homeless guy, um, and an addict. And he starts talking about, um, his childhood and he was sexually abused. And this poor guy is in tears and he says, when your children tell you there's a boogeyman in their bedroom, believe them. He said, the boogeyman might not be what you think it is, but you have to believe them. And it was just heartbreaking. And that was a 40-second clip. And like you said, mm-hmm. that, that spoke 100,000 words. Yeah, yeah. That's really, I mean, any art can do that, but but this is why film touches me so much because... Because of the audio audiovisual factor in it, you're watching someone saying it. Whether it's scripted or not, that doesn't actually matter. But in documentary, the nice thing about it is real. And you're right, there's actually a lot of really nice documentaries out in this time. And it's because documentaries are becoming more and more hybrid. So they're looking like an actual cinematic piece, but they're real. Um, I'm myself quite obsessed with true crime documentaries. There's a couple really good ones. Um, I just finished one that is basically reenactment by actual A-list um, actors and people telling the story through that, kind of like a, a woven story. And I just, I I watch it and then I lose myself and then I go, Holy shit! This actually really happened. It's that it's that thing when when people really enjoy it when when the first line in the film says based on a true story or like true events or something that people like you know you go you go into the story more because the whole the whole what if factor starts playing a role. You go, what would I do? You know, what if this happened to me? What would I do? Would I go to the police? Would I not go to police? Who would I tell? What would I do? Would I run? Would I fight? You know, like these these questions that are all very existential, right? And I think that what you just said about that guy, it's one sentence, it's 40 seconds that really grabbed you forever. Um, and it sparked your interest in a certain, in a certain way a human thinks, right? So when we watch a lot of those, we get such a broad and colorful palette of what a human is. And this is what is really interesting about documentary. And I, I mean, I just said it can be about anything. It doesn't have to be about humans only. You know, it can be about animal behavior or about the night sky or about the universe. It doesn't matter. This is like everything that we know as humans, we can then kind of like dissect a little in an audiovisual way, which is so, so strong. Um, and I, I personally 
try in my work to move away from shock value. So to not like add, um, how do I say that? Like to not kind of purposefully, deliberately add shock value for people to like it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I want it, I want it to be real. Um, but sometimes real also means that it can get really dark, but because it's so real and because it's not sensationalized, there's also light in it because it's someone brave enough to tell their story that is really dark, but in such a light way that it inspires others to maybe also talk about it or think about it or write about it or make art about it, you know? So it becomes kind of like a, a cycle from one person to another. And it kind of like, is kind of like a pay it forward type thing. And yeah, I, I, this is what I like about art in general, but this is why film is my, my, I tried a lot of things and then film kind of became my, my end stop, so to say. Well, I know your most recent project is Together Alone, and you talked about, you know, holding the torch for a purpose and mental health was yours. So, you know, what have you been able to do with documentaries and, you know, kind of pushing forward that mental health message that you lived for so long? So what I ran into when I started talking about my own mental health um, is that a lot of people who don't know it, so the people that haven't been through a panic attack or through depression, people that actually don't know anything about it, want to know about it, but not in a way that is going to like scare them, whether it's for themselves or for other people. And so I realized that the, the image of mental health as a whole was, in my eyes, wrong. Um, because I would Google like my symptoms or the things that I was thinking about, thinking that I was the only one. And then I'd just get like Google images showing me black and white, like females in a corner pressed into their own hand palms. And like, it was this terrible image where I was like, oh my God, I mean, I, I do feel these things, but like, I'm not sitting in a corner. I'm actually flying to New York tomorrow. And so I realized that a lot of people that I was talking to were really, really functioning people and successful, you know, successful what they did, whether it was their mask and they were hiding behind their work or not. It was from the outside. You would never be able to tell that there was something quote unquote wrong with them because there's nothing wrong with them, but it's seen by society as like something scary because we don't talk about it. And so my main focus with Together Alone was to actually make it very human and create some light around it, have it be something that actually is inspirational to go through because once you're out on the other end, it gives you all these things. And, you know, my sensitivity, I always experienced this as thing that I should actually get rid of. I hated being sensitive as a kid and as a teenager. And during my 20s, and especially now in my 30s, I'm embracing it so much because it's actually my superpower. My sensitivities are actually what makes me connect to others through connecting with myself. And all those spots that get touched are, you know, kind of like lighting up, right? So it's what I said much earlier in this conversation. When I was suicidal, I didn't want to die. I just didn't know how to live. And that is a difference. It's a big difference. And so what I try to do is, is line up 
people that will be able to inspire others to talk about it, but also to feel not alone because that's why it's called together alone because we're, we're all together. We're also all alone. We're together alone. Like we're, we're not, <laughs> you know, I mean, we're all the center of the universe. If you look at it from a scientific point of view. So might sound a bit egocentric, but I think that if we, if we, if we get to know all the facets of ourselves, then we can also connect with the facets of other people. And then it becomes much, much less scary because it becomes supportive. Um, and so I look for subjects that have a story that is lighting that way. And um, a slogan that we've been working with quite a bit that has actually gotten lost a little, but um, is uh, relate, reflect, release. Meaning if you relate to something and then reflect it onto your own experiences, you can actually release whatever you didn't need out of it or release the tension or release the pressure. And this is a big one with mental health, you know, because with physical health, we, we, we do that. You know, we have a pimple, we squeeze it. We have a, a cut, we put a Band-Aid on it. We have a headache, we pop a pill. You know, we break a foot, we put a cast on it. We have a panic attack. What do we do? You know, we're stuck in depression. What do we do? And it doesn't matter to me, anyone that is struggling with anything mental and going through something. I wouldn't say one thing is easier or harder or more understandable or less understandable. There is definitely a spectrum, though, in how severe things can get. And I just think that some, some mental health issues got a lot of airtime and others didn't. And the ones that didn't really need to, um, as a lot of us are, are, are dealing with them. So, you know, a psychosis, for example, that is very far on the spectrum, is, it's a very intense mental health ailment, so to say. Um, and, but what we know about it or what we see in the media of it is also like really out there. It's like, nobody wants to go there, right? It's like a, it's like a black hole. But what if that leading up to that is actually what we all go through, right? Like, I think a lot of people actually get to a point of their mental illness, which was stoppable if they would have had an out, you know, a good therapist, a, a, a set of friends that were actually listening. Um, something to relate to at all times. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Even I was talking to someone the other day through this conversation, even things like postpartum depression. When I've posed this to a couple of psychologists about what, you know, if we're seeing the amplification of childhood trauma when you enter first responder profession, when you enter the military and, you know, through all these, these, these conversations, realizing that that's, that's the foundation of a lot of things. Then, you know, is postpartum create, um, connected to that? And a lot of them are like, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. We were talking about it's the hormones and you had a baby and now you're just sad. Like, well, it doesn't make any sense. You know, we've had babies since the beginning of time, but you have someone who's, 
gone through whatever it was and it wasn't processed healthily and then they have a baby, now that's a completely different thing. And even like you said, with, with the correlation between uh, the psychosis side with, with suicide, which is absolutely psychosis, the, the entire you know, natural world ultimately is trying to ensure their own and their children's survival and suicide goes completely against that. And then the, the correlation between suicide and homicide. And we see that all the time too, the murder suicide. So I agree with you completely. There, of course, can be people with complete miswiring from birth but they are the anomalies most of us i truly believe you know you can catch them before they become deep in addiction before they come deep in crime before they most things the only thing that i've heard people in the psychology world say is most sexual predators are those anomalies with the miswire brains from the beginning because they they don't fit any mold there's no um, correlation between them being abused and then becoming you know the abuser um that seems to be a, a a separate set but pretty much every other issue that we see that causes pain in the world i agree 100 percent. that wasn't what that three-year-old was thinking about when they were in preschool you know these were all kind of blank canvases until you know their experiences, which are why I think is the, uh, the phrase people say, what's wrong with you? I love the, the way of changing that to what happened to you. When you start saying what happened to you, now you have an actionable journey that you can start going down and trying to address the things that created this, this maelstrom in your mind. Yeah. This is actually a really good way of putting it. And now that you say that, I realize that my partner actually often asks what happened instead of what's wrong. Um, now now that you said that i realized that um yeah you're totally right i i i think that we all have you know we talk about your path a path but it's not a path it's like a forest of tiny little you know ways and wiggles and you know we 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 make our way through um but I once spoke to a psychologist about the the power of the mind once it has made a brain connection. And because I did EMDR quite a bit, um, I know quite a bit about that. And what's so interesting is that the brain basically just wants to store something, but wh- wherever the capacity is, it stores it, right? And then you have your, your short-term and your long-term memory. And at some point, short-term becomes long-term. Some things just go, some things stay. And whatever is actually a core memory or really, really something that sticks with you, you can't actually just say, this is what's going to stick. This is what's not going to stick. I remember things from when I was two or three years old that I have no idea why I remembered that. I have no idea. And they come to me as like visions sometimes. But what my psychologist said about my panic attacks is that basically the, the, the first time your the brain connection, that whatever triggered me in that instance was like, a forest, right? Like South America forest, like trees everywhere and leaves everywhere. And it's raining and there's roots on the floor and like, you can't walk through and it's like so difficult. And then, you know, another person walks there and another person walks there. And then like, at some point it's a damn four lane freeway, you know? And this is what happens to the brain as well. The more you make that trip to a certain connection, the easier it becomes for your brain to do that. But that's in positive and in negative. So if it's a trauma and it at some point becomes really easy to get triggered and it just goes over that four-way, uh, four-lane freeway, um, it, it happens without even realizing it. 
And this is this is something that we need to realize that we 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 carry all these things our entire lives. And what was or wasn't important, we don't consciously know. We don't sit there and go, oh yeah, I remember this because of this and this and this. But we can dissect it. We can see in our own patterns in the rest of our lives what we go back to. And this is what therapy taught me that, you know, the the value that we put on a certain memory is also how easy it is to feel something with that memory because your brain goes there and to rewire that is very, very possible. And I think people, people don't believe in that enough. I think people say, Oh, you know, people don't change. Like people absolutely change. People don't change for other people. People change when they want to change and when they feel that they should change or because they are changing naturally as an evolve and, you know, an evolution. But, you know, we absolutely change. And so sometimes I look at old me's or I look at situations, you know, prior. You basically said it with the conductor in the tram. You know, for a long time, I would see a conductor and my brain would go, oh, nausea. And now I see a conductor and I go, oh, he has a story too. Interesting. I, I no longer go to that nausea because I've rewired the connection. So even though it may sometimes still bother me that that is a, it's a memory, it still exists. I can't just throw it in the, in the bin, but I've rewired it so that it doesn't actually hurt me anymore. And, and I mean, I, I'm talking like I'm making a big advertisement for EMDR, but I really believe in it because <laughs> um, it's helped me tremendously. And it's helped a couple of people around me that had absolute terrible, terrible experiences and couldn't get out of it. Like they couldn't like go on with their daily lives because of it. Right. And they're perfectly fine now. So I do believe that we can rewire and change and restructure and change our habits and change our patterns. And all we need to do is recognize them and to recognize them. We need to actually relate to something or someone that has the same. Beautiful. Well, it's so good to hear about EMDR too, because I've had a lot of people on here, especially people that have acute events that EMDR has worked incredibly well for. You know, and I think that's the thing is understanding there's a whole toolbox of options for you. It could be EMDR, it could be psilocybin led counseling, it could be equine therapy. But, you know, there are answers for every single one of us. And it might even be medication. And if that's the case and it works, beautiful. But the EMDR, you talk about non-invasive. I mean, whether you're holding a light in front of someone or paddles that vibrate to talk someone through and process that reoccurring short-term memory and put it in the filing cabinet. Um, I mean, just, it makes, it makes perfect sense. And, and not to be confused with that memory goes away because every single face of my career is still locked away in there. Um, and that will be there till, you know, till they put me in the ground. But. I've been very fortunate where I've been able to process all mine. So I haven't had to do that. But, um, a, a lot of people I had on the show that had acute events, whether it was in their childhood, whether it was actually as a soldier or a firefighter, um, that seems to be an incredibly, um, useful tool that many, many people report having great benefits from. Absolutely. One, 100%. I hear really a lot of good stories about this. Um, you just touched on medication. I also think that if you need that, then great. And if it works, great. Um, I think that we did go down a path as humans where the allopathic side kind of won for a while. 
and I see it changing a little because, you know, the world of internet is there and you can find every answer to every question. You can also make the internet absolutely agree with everything you're wondering. <laughs> um, I saw this Instagram, this guy who said, uh, I'm just going to check uh, if Google agrees that you can go blind from drinking coffee. And he goes, Siri, can one go blind from drinking coffee? And the first result will say, you know, uh, results have shown um, that one can go blind or whatever, something, something. And then like, Siri, uh, can one get better vision from drinking coffee? And then you also get the answer, right? And so we could get our own answers. There is a bad side to that. But to focus on the good side of that is that we can also find our own information. So we can find a lot about therapies. We can read up on it, you know, without having to go to the library and read through like encyclopedias of things. We can find things, you know. What does certain medication do to me? Can I find, you know, help online? Is there a hotline? What is free? What costs money? Like all these things, right? Like will my insurance cover it? Like all these, these, you know, we have so much information in the palm of our hands. And um, uh, I think for a long time what happened is that people were just put on medication too quickly or too young or on the wrong one. <laughs> Or, you know, misdiagnosed. A lot of people around me were misdiagnosed. Um, and so to kind of keep track on what is good for you and what suits you, you know, for me, that was EMDR. If for someone else that is antidepressants, perfect. If for someone that is yoga, perfect. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But I think it needs to come from within that that solution is feeding the actual core problem and to get to the core problem you first need to look at all the facets of it right how has this been cut um yeah and for me um for me that is restructuring and rewiring and i'm still doing it i'm doing it every day i mean i do micro meditation because actual actual meditation is too tedious for me but like i'll sit in a car next to somebody or i'll sit on the couch and I'll literally just kind of space out and allow all my thoughts to just be for like a minute or two minutes or five minutes. And then I'll pick the ones that I, that have confused me or that have brought on a certain feeling and I'll go through it and let it go. But that's also quite rewiring in a sense. Um, yeah. And my, I mean, knock on wood, I guess, but I, I'm really grateful and and happy to say that my mental health has really stabilized over the past, I'd say, four or five years. Well, I think that's that's you know so empowering of all these stories where people come out the other end, and you know, but they're not perfect. Like you said, it's an ongoing thing, but it's a manageable manageable ongoing thing. And as you know, you grow for it. I think the the term that's used far. You know, too, I was going to say far too less. Is that right? It's not used enough anyway. I was doing double negative then. Um, is post-traumatic growth. Like we go through this journey, we come out the other side. And as you said, there are elements of you that are stronger now. And that's what's empowering, but it doesn't mean that you're fixed. You know, we're constantly going through this, this kind of, you know, roller coaster ride that is life. You could do so well in therapy and then, you know, your loved one gets an illness or, you know, you lose your house or whatever. Well, that's got nothing to do with what happened before, but it's now a new thing that you have to address. But 
hearing people having great success with whatever modality work for them, I think it gives hope to a lot of people. It shows, firstly, they're not alone, but it also shows them that it's not... And that's, I think this is the thing that happens with the antidepressant world. Well, you're going to be on this forever now. No, like you said, that's not fixing it. Now, if you use that to calm your anxiety so that you can do better in counseling and address the root, I see where they have a point. If you're just given a prescription and told this is how you're going to be living forever, I disagree wholeheartedly. Same. I feel the same. And I think uh, a whole lot of this is acceptance-based. I think finding acceptance for what you're feeling and how you're feeling and the fact that only acceptance will bring you to a potential solution. Um, Because fighting it is very draining. I I fought my own mind for a long time and it's not really doing anything for me. Um, And by accepting and also kind of embracing different forms and different shapes of who I am, who I was, who I want to be, finding that out and grabbing on to different ways of solving the issues at hand and then going, nope, this one wasn't for me. Nope, this one wasn't also not for me. I think, I, you know, I hear a lot of people say like, oh, I've tried absolutely everything and it's just not working. And I'm like, but you've just tried like two, three things. You just didn't like them, you know? And so the will to get to a point of, you know, betterment in whatever way, shape, or form starts with accepting that there is an issue. This is the same with addiction. You don't admit that you're an addict, then the solution is never going to come your way, right? Because the acceptance of the problem at hand is going to be the first door to be opened to, you know, walk into that gallery of broken hearts, as I like to call it. And, um, see why there's so much pain or, or why you feel so broken or alone or, or distrusting or whatever, whatever the, 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 the source is, whatever the core is. And um, you just said about books. I think you were going to also ask me a question about that. It's funny because my mom is a writer and I, she has over 50 books published and I'm like the most terrible reader. I don't read at all. But I think my favorite book in the world was given to me by a really dear friend of mine. And it's The Daily Stoic. And it's just one page a day. And it's basically someone, the author basically explains things that Stoics have said in a little bit easier fashion. So you'll see what the actual Stoic has said. Marcus Aurelius, Seneca. And then he'll like say it in, you know, Normal English. <laughs> and it's uh, Ryan Holiday. Have I got that right? Yeah. And it's, and it's awesome um, because you can just do it 365. It's goes, it goes by date. So it's not like a random thing. You just read it every day and then it's finished. And then you start again. And it always helps me to kind of stay in that acceptance mode because that's basically what Stoics do. Like whatever happens, whatever it is that happens around you, you can't change if you can't change it then accept it right and like gracefully move on and i've learned a lot from that that whole acceptance thing made a huge difference in my life yeah it reminds me of something that wayne dyer used to say and i talk about him a lot sadly he passed away but he was very instrumental in my kind of spiritual journey and 
a lot of people haven't heard of him, but he's almost like a, a white Deepak Chopra is the best way of describing him. But he, he said, there's two things in the world Then when it comes to stress. If you can control it, then change it. If you can't control it, then let it go. And I was like, shit, that's genius and so insanely simple. Yeah. But you have one of two choices. If it's out of your control, there's nothing you can do about it. Let it go. If it's in your control work to change it, then let it go. It's that simple. Yeah. There is a Buddhist saying that is quite the same. Um, accept the things you can't change and change the things you can't accept. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure that's what he's probably paraphrasing, but uh, yeah, genius. Well, you gave me a book. So while we're on the closing areas, um, what about a film? You touched on the docu-series. We didn't actually give me the name of the one that you were enjoying. So what was that one called? And then are there any other ones called, that you enjoy? It's called Wormwood. And uh, the cinematography is absolutely amazing. It's about a case um, of a guy that got drugged with LSD by the CIA and supposedly jumped from a window. But it's about the whole case of like him actually not jumping from a window, but but it being it being a murder. And the whole series investigates that through his son. And uh, cinematography is awesome. And the, there's like A-list actors basically doing all the reenactments of the things that the son is talking about. Really good. Really, really good. There's a lot of films that I could now talk about. I'd probably fall asleep doing that because I love film. Um, there's a couple of movies that really helped me um, understand the mind. One of them is A Single Man. It was actually Tom Ford's first movie, who is a fashion designer. And I expected nothing of it because I was like, oh, yeah, great. Another fashion designer trying to do something else. And it was absolutely impeccable. <laughs> so amazing. Um, everything about that movie is really great. And it's, it's very much about mental health as well um, in a very human way. Brilliant. You said a couple of movies. Was there another one? I am. I'm actually thinking. I'm thinking. <laughs> oh, actually, I very recently saw Supernova. Beautiful um, film about the will to euthanasia. Early onset Alzheimer's and the will to not live that out, and what that does to a couple. Very beautiful film. Um, Blackbird. Also beautiful. Also about euthanasia, by the way. I watch very happy films. <laughs> <laughs> you know, very, very happy-go-lucky films. Well, euthanasia is another whole discussion. I had uh, a guy, Dr. BJ Miller, on the show who's a palliative care physician. And we had that discussion, you know, because my, my dad's a vet, veterinarian. So people don't think twice about putting their animal to sleep when... You know, you, when you're hopefully doing it from altruistic place, it's suffering, it's blind, it's arthritic, and, you know, you want to put it out of its misery, basically. Well, I think a human should be able to have the same choice. I get where that can be abused, and sadly, everyone always focuses at the worst-case scenario of anything. Oh, he's not going to have, you know, a welfare system because this person has a Mercedes and they use food stamps. Yeah, well, that person is a shitbag, but, you know, let's let's look at the masses. And, yeah, if you've got someone who's slowly dying you know and there's more and more pain and discomfort why shouldn't we give them the opportunity to make their decision when they want to transition over amen 100 percent um i've i've had a lot of um 
sickness or disease in my surroundings in a way that actually taught me a lot about what we're holding on to, like that the body is just a body. And I mean, in my, in my perspective, um, but during that, I also spoke very openly with each of these people about death. And I think it's a very, very, very interesting conversation because we talk about life all the time, but we're very afraid to talk about death. Even though without death, life isn't the same. So it's just another part of life. And I think because a lot of people don't know where they'll go and like all that type of stuff, it becomes scary. But yeah, if you're sick or you even sign a euthanasia contract before you get sick, just because you want to be in the right mind to say, hey, if I ever end up like this, I don't want to do it, right? I think that should totally be in your hands because if you're allowed to live your life the way you want to, then why can't you die the way you want to? And I actually have a friend who lost his brother, um, death by suicide, and um, he hung himself. And then much later, I think like 10 years later, um, his sister got really depressed and um, just couldn't live anymore. And after years and years of like treatments and all these things, she was just, she was like, I, I, this, is, this is not for me anymore. I'm done here. But I don't want to do what my brother did. So you guys will have to let me go. And it was a proper um, thing of like being able to say goodbye and all that stuff. And the, how this was perceived by the family was so different from the death by suicide. And I think a lot of people would say, oh, but it's the same thing. But it isn't. I don't think it's the same thing. Um, it could be the same thing if we had the actual choice. You know, but, it, but it's not. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely pro. And I think that's also due to where I'm from. We even have a TV show that is actually about people that have signed up for euthanasia through something they have. And a journalist actually living the last X amount of time with them and interviewing them about life, and death and family and love and everything. It's a beautiful show because you get to know these people and you get to know why they don't, they can't anymore. And one episode that struck me is that um, was a woman who also had early onset Alzheimer's and just that, you know, she couldn't remember her own like kids and stuff. It was just really sad. And then the, the doctor who does that came to the home and she grabbed her agenda and was like a, a child so excited to plan her death. And she was sitting on the couch, like, like frolicking and saying to the doctor, I'm so excited that I have control over this because I have no control over anything in my life anymore. And I can now just control and like put a mark in my agenda when it's going to be over. And I'm looking forward to it. And it really grabbed me. I thought it was a really interesting way of turning that whole control thing around, you know, because in most, in most ways we don't control when we die, how we die. No, but we do. So as a paramedic in America, if I come to your house and you've gone into cardiac arrest and there's a yellow piece of paper on your refrigerator that says DNR, then I don't work you. Now, if that isn't filled in properly or it's a photocopy, now I work you. If I'm in an ICU and you've, you know, signed the papers, then, which I've actually done on my paramedic rotations, you pull the tube. And that's a slow 
death, you're waiting to die and they'll medicate you and everything. And, you know, then as you said, the suicide element. And obviously the goal with mental health is to do everything you can to make people want to live. Exactly like you said, I want to live. But if physically or mentally, and there are terminal depressions, you know, I've got a, a friend I had on the show as a fire chief who, uh, he lost his son and it doesn't matter what they did. He repeatedly tried to take his own life. He was stopped a few times, but you know, he, it, it was a, it was a foregone conclusion. So as you said, in those situations, how is it that a paramedic or a doctor can decide if you live or die, but you can't decide if you live or die? Yeah, it's quite terrible. It's actually, it's really quite terrible. It's, 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 it's also something that makes me, we could, we could have another five hour conversation about this. Let's not do that. But <laughs> I, uh, it's something that also makes me quite mad because it's, it's very red tape. Um, my grandmother actually did sign one of those waivers, but she was living in an elderly home and then she moved and somehow during the move, the systems, voila. And so that thing just went. And then when she was doing worse and worse and worse and worse, she kind of wanted to call on that, but she was no longer coherent enough to sign a new one. And the old one was gone. So she had to sit it out and it made us very uncomfortable. You know, because it's like we saw that she didn't want that anymore. And yeah, it's this whole it's this whole thing of control. This this is this is really a control thing. Absolutely. And you know, it goes back to like you said, if you can control it, you can't, we're all gonna die. That's the part that's out yeah. of our control. You know what I this mean? This is the only guarantee we have. Yes, that and taxes, as I say. Well, I want to just quickly put one thing in before I go to my next closing question. We were connected by Josie, who is an amazing woman, and I'm so happy to see her, you know, doing so well after her you know, brain cancer and surgeries. So, how did you guys meet? Um, we met through someone a very long time ago. Not actually that long ago, maybe twelve years ago. Um, and she was working at the same bar, I believe as our mutual friend. Um, the funny thing is I like the closest people to me. I never know how I met them because it then went from like zero to 60 and 3.5. I have like Ferrari friendships, but um, yeah, I, 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 I don't remember the exact moment that I met her, but I remembered everything after. I and mean, we, we just really clicked. Um, and at some point I was living in LA and she was living in San Diego and she'd come to LA for a couple days at a time or a couple weeks at a time. And, this is where our friendship, I think, really um, grew and blossomed because we were both kind of at that age where everything is just really cool and like you want to discover life, you know? So we did that a lot. No, we're all grown up. <laughs> I mean, we're kids. But um, yeah, I, I basically call her my little sister because it feels that way. Um, I don't have any siblings, so I don't know what it actually feels like to have siblings. She definitely feels like that that sibling that I can be brutally honest with without consequences or with the consequence being that we listen and we change and we take each other's advice and stuff like that. Um, she's an amazing human being and I'm terribly sorry about what happened to her because you don't wish that upon anybody, but she's handled it extremely gracefully. Yeah. She's, I mean, the leader in, in many, many different ways. 
So when I asked her this question, you were the person that she uh, said to me. So I'll ask you now, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I do actually. Yeah. Um, even though I've not been in touch with him for a while, I think you should talk to Justin Melnick. Tell me more about him. He is a, he was a combat photographer. Um, so he's done everything in that realm where he sees a lot of what's going on in the world. Um, very American, proud American, um, trained, uh, trained a Belgian Malinois to do all the stuff that they do with the police force and then created a character for a show and then actually became an actor. And, um, he basically plays what he does in real life, but like he was basically also a um, consultant, I want to say, because he knows so much about the force. Um, I think that show is like four seasons already or something. Um, and he's just all around a really solid human being. And I think he would have a lot to say about these topics that we spoke about. Beautiful. Well, if you're able to connect us, I'd love to get him on. It sounds amazing. I'll do that. Thank you. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, your photography, your your documentaries. What do you do to decompress? You talked about the micro meditations. What else do you do? Um, to be very honest, lately I don't do enough. <laughs> um, there's a lot that I did do. So we touched on the boxing that I did. Swimming was at some point really um, something that I needed to being underwater somehow submerging myself in water has always made me feel really safe. Um, so whether it's in a pool or just in the ocean or in a lake or anything, just water makes me feel really, really safe. So when I don't feel good or I feel like it's been too much, I sometimes take like six showers a day just to be in water. Um, so showers definitely, um, in that, on that same token, I actually tend to wash my hands a lot, just running water on my, um, not even my hands, but my wrists. Love that. Um, I do tend to find a lot of solace in watching movies because they make me relate to characters and they give me a lot of inspiration. So even when I'm dead tired, watching a movie is often something that really calms me down and kind of gets me ready for new ideas to kind of pop up. Um, and my alone time. My alone time is definitely number one. I, even though sometimes I do it for too long and that can work the other way around. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I need to be alone. And funnily enough, as of late, I haven't been, and it hasn't been bothering me because I have kind of chosen several people. Like I said earlier, my, my mom, my best friend, my partner, they can always be around me. I don't, I, I feel together alone with them. So it could be, you know, him or her working and me reading a book or uh, I just ratted myself out because I actually don't read, but, um, <laughs> Hypothetical. You know, <laughs> could be anything, um, you know, separate, but together. And this is extremely important to me. It's extremely important to me to have alone time, but also be able to kind of reflect with a one-on-one. -on -one or maybe a two on two, you know, something like that. 
Now, it's interesting what you said about the water. I had a couple of guys that have, um, they're, they're ex-military and they have a thing called deep end fitness where they do you know, a bunch of uh, like underwater training and they even have a thing called, uh, is it the tor- underwater torpedo league where they have this little torpedo and it's like almost like, uh, underwater soccer, but you're throwing this thing into a goal. But anyway, the point being, um, a lot of people have said, how they find being underwater calming and it's the it's the temperature it's the pressure and of course i'm sure there's you know there's an element of the you know the pregnancy part too 100 percent. yeah 100 yeah. so so when you look back what do you attribute to the the love of water i mean <laughs> for me it goes it does go back to the pregnancy because i wondered for a long time why i found water so fucking calming and uh and soothing and safe but i was born three weeks late. So I was in the water as a much more coherent, you know, developed uh, baby than a lot of babies when they're, when they're born. So I think I just, I I think I experienced a lot in those three weeks, (laughs) you know, sound and movement and all these things as kind of like an overdeveloped baby to be born. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, my mom talks about this a lot. My mom is five four, and I was three weeks late, so I'm really sorry. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't great. Um, but labor was terrible, and da da da, and it was really difficult, and I almost didn't want to come out. So I, I think I just felt really safe in there. But then more, when I was finally born, the doctor just went shit, and my mom and dad just freaked out and were like. What's wrong, with, what's wrong with it? And they didn't know if I was going to be a boy or a girl. So it's also like, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? And the doctor was like, this is extremely rare. Your daughter is born with her eyes open. And so I basically just was born with my eyes. Just staring at him. <laughs> like just like, like popping out of my, uh, out of my skull, just staring into it. My mom still says it like you were just ready. You were ready to observe. I could imagine after you were crowning, well, you know, your mother was crowning us technically. And yeah, as you start leaving the birth canal, you just lock in eyes with the, uh, the OB. Yep. That must be a little freaky. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm ready world. I, I don't know if you're ready for me, but let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Well, it has been an amazing conversation. I'm sure people would love to you know, learn more about you, you know, find your, your work. So where are the best places online? I have a very small online presence. So my website is dorothmouse.com. Very easy. D-O-R-I-T-H-M-O-U-S. Um, I'm, I'm the only one in the world, so you'll easily find me. And the same on Instagram, just at dorothmouse. And that's it. Otherwise, they'll have to find me in real life. There we go, in, in India. <laughs> yeah, just come sit next to me on a plane. <laughs> there we go, yeah. Guaranteed a conversation. Well, Doroth, I want to say thank you. It's been an amazing conversation. We've gone for almost two and a half hours, which I love. Like time flies and we go all these little random tangents, but uh, such an amazing conversation. So many parallels as with so many people that come on here that aren't in the professions that initially this was for, but there's so much value. You know, we said putting that human side back. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Thank you. Fully reciprocated. Thank you so much. Your questions were awesome. I had to think about a couple sometimes, <laughs> um, but it's really good to be challenged and dive into my own mind um, to be able to answer them. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak. <laughs>